Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your dedicated host and history storyteller, John Hagedorn, and it's time for a journey through some very important American history. You could also say a crucial time in American history, and you'd be right. Perhaps the most crucial time. I know that many of you listeners are well-steeped in history, and you can probably name a handful of times when America came close to the brink of destruction. I can think of a few, one being the Battle of Midway against the Japanese in the Pacific during World War II. While their own carriers, the Lexington and the Yorktown, were being destroyed, sank or crippled three of Japan's largest aircraft carriers and destroyed a large portion of their fleet, turning the tide of the Pacific War against Japan. This was the first time that aircraft carriers had faced off in war. The 80th anniversary of that battle is being observed as I write this today. Search our archives here for the Battle of Midway, and you'll find that episode, which contains interviews with the USS Yorktown survivors. It's a very informative episode. Then there was the Battle of New Orleans in 1812, where Andy Jackson brought together a colorful mix of Cajuns, pirates, freed slaves, and American militiamen, and ran the British back down the Mississippi to the Gulf of Mexico, as Johnny Horton's song goes, to be banished forever as a threat. But it was at Valley Forge, about 18 miles west of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, during the winter of 1777-1778, that America faced its biggest challenge, not from any major battle, but from severe cold, disease, and a test of faith in their leaders from the poundings they'd been taking in battle, being outsmarted and outfought by the British for months from Brooklyn Heights to Brandywine. They were then left with no choice but to retreat, starve, and freeze in Valley Forge for the better part of six months, while their enemy, the British, partied to extremes in Philadelphia, hosted by the wealthy Tories of Pennsylvania who supported the monarchy and did all they could to subvert the cause of liberty, while lining their own pockets in the process. Why the British didn't mount a winter attack on Washington's army is one of the greatest unsolved mysteries of the Revolution, and we'll discuss some of those theories as we go along. Today we'll be joining that ragtag bunch of rebels as they enter the rolling hills of Valley Forge, hills which I know all too well from spending the bulk of my youth exploring on foot and on bicycle its monuments, its streams, its caves, its slopes, its graveyards, and its ghostly mysteries. As I relate the story of the militiamen who left their bloody footprints in the snow and the farms and houses that border what is now National Parkland, and how the winter winds blow unheeded down that valley, Great Valley, I can do it from a first-person perspective. Valley Forge was where I got my first dose of American history, and where I came to realize, even as a boy, the tremendous sacrifice those men made in order to keep that army together during those months from December of 1777 through June of 1778. For me, as a 10-year-old living on Colonel DeWeese Road in a neighborhood called South Glenhardy, where the streets were all named after officers who served at Valley Forge with Washington, it was an easy hike down Walker Road to the outskirts of the park. The kids in North Glenhardy had it even easier. Their houses faced the park, the grassy plain that led to the Arch Monument and then sloped up to the woods. It was on that grassy plain that Baron von Steuben trained those ragtag soldiers how to load and fire rapidly. And on the slopes just beyond those, hundreds of cabins were built for what remained of Washington's army. In the summer, we explored the park and its woods and caves and monuments and graveyards, climbed old railroad bridges which crossed over the Schuylkill River, and kept watch for the legendary hermit of Valley Forge. 
"'In the winter we sledded and toboggan down Anthony Wayne Hill "'as his statue looked down at us from atop his horse, "'where ambulances stood by on weekends. "'It would get crowded on weekends and snow days, "'and people, especially little children too young to be out there on that steep slope, "'would get plowed over by toboggans, "'which aren't as easy to control as sleds. "'When there was ice, Anthony Wayne Hill could really get dangerous.' The United States Memorial Arch stands at the intersection of Gulf Road and Outer Line Drive at the park. It stands 60 feet tall and was built to honor Washington and his army. It was dedicated on June 19, 1917, during World War I, when patriotism was at an all-time high here in America, and Congress voted to authorize the payment for it. A train of Pullman cars brought members of Congress to Valley Forge, and Pennsylvania Governor Brombaugh spoke of the spirit of Valley Forge and its importance during some very hard times. I'll share the inscription on that arch at the end of the story in Part 2. It will have a much greater impact on you after you've heard the whole story. Central to the entire story is the leadership of General George Washington. The challenges he faced should make present-day Americans ashamed of any complaints we have about the difficulties of self-government, divides in Congress, shortages of military supplies, and arrogant, corrupt politicians. Washington and his supporters were taking on the most powerful empire in the world at that time, an empire with strong ties in Congress, with the wealthy, and with the media, which could win hearts and minds with constant propaganda, while America's true patriots had only a vision to guide them, a vision of raising their families in a country not ruled by another country, England in this case, where many of them had emigrated from seeking freedom. Over 2,400 men died during that six-month encampment, not from battle, but from lack of proper shelter and extreme temperatures, lack of nourishment, lack of food, and most of all, sickness and disease. It was December 22, 1777, when General George Washington rode slowly along the crest of a ridge that ran north and south along the south side of Mount Joy. This is where he would place his inner line defense positions, here he had the advantage of height, the cover of a second growth of trees, and wide slopes below over which any attacking force had to march in full view of his cannon and muskets. The old woods were largely gone, having been cut down by the iron forge for which the site was named. Valley Forge was a far from perfect defensive position, but it was close enough to Philadelphia and its British occupiers to enable them to keep watch, and far enough to be able to prepare should they decide upon attacking. To the east and north of where Washington was riding, the Schuylkill River provided flanking cover. The trees of the emerging forest, although young, were still perfect for the easy felling and conversion of logs for huts and to serve as firewood, and right now they needed huts desperately. Washington grimaced. Weeks ago he had handed over his well-detailed plans to Congress, and had received promises from the Congressional Committee for the Conduct of the War that militia would be roused to construct shelters and build defensive lines. They also promised rations enough to last Washington and his men through the winter. No men were sent. No tools had been provided to build shelters. No warm boots or uniforms had been provided. No food of any type. Nothing. Congress answered him with total indifference. There were many snakes in the garden in the American Congress. One year ago, he was a hero of Trenton. Today, he could still feel the sting of being outmaneuvered for control of Philadelphia his loss at Brandywine, and the massacre of his troops under General Anthony Wayne just two weeks ago in Paoli. 
Most of the trouble from Congress, he sensed, was coming from General Gates, who had soaked up much of the credit for the victory at Saratoga, for which Washington had openly congratulated him. But friends in Congress told him that Gates was openly vying for Washington's position, and raising doubts about him at every opportunity. But Washington knew this. It was one thing to win a fight in the northern forest against an enemy with overextended supply lines hundreds of miles long, using experienced militiamen who had served during the French-Indian War. But here his army, comprised of 12,000 men, was comprised of family men and farmers who had been promised leave and pay and had received neither, nor had they received uniforms or food. Finally, Washington had to give them their leave. He wasn't a king. He was a general. Those that wanted to go back to their families could do so, he said. As desperately as he needed them, it was their right to go. As he rode down the slope, he saw thousands of his men spread out across the fields and slopes, huddled around campfires in the snow. Only a few rose to their feet as he rode past, so miserable were they. Rations had run out two days ago, while many of them were marching to this place from Paoli. There were no tools for the building of shelters. Nothing. At night, some men snuck out to local farms to steal food. Some never returned. At one of those farms, two skeletons in what had been continental uniforms were dug up during a cellar renovation. This I had heard from a girl I knew in school whose farm had been in her family then. Washington looked at his men. He had issued a direct appeal to Congress for clothing. His men were in rags, literally. Not one in twenty possessed a proper winter cloak, and nearly half of them were barefoot. Congress replied that his uniforms were being made in France, and that he should have them by the spring, hopefully, maybe March, if they made it through the naval blockade. As he rode, some of the men cried out, "'We have no meat! We're starving! We have no shoes, no boots!' Others made sounds like crows. Washington knew this was their way of saying that they would soon be flying away, leaving, for their lives, their families, safe, warm homes. Try to put yourself in Washington's place, and the more you do, the more you realize that this was a desperate situation. Everything, everywhere he looked, spelled need. He needed a hospital to care for the sick, the frostbitten, the weak, and the starving. He needed at least twenty head of cattle every day, and twice that many hogs every day. For bread he needed six tons of flour a day to feed twelve thousand men, although that number, he realized with a grimace, would be rapidly dwindling soon. They had horses, but he heard that the artillery crews who had them were killing them off for food. When Washington finally made it back to his tent, his desk was filled with letters. There were letters from parents asking for information regarding the whereabouts of their sons. An official note from Congress, which was now in York, Pennsylvania, was there, declaring that the patriots of New Jersey were suffering under the yoke of a loyalist governor, and that he, Washington, should deploy a force to take back New Jersey. There was another letter from a committee of Pennsylvania state representatives proclaiming that there were no Tories left around Philadelphia, and that he, Washington, should plan an attack forthwith. This, they said, would restore faith in his abilities. That really stung. Another letter was from a friend who told him that Gates was being singled out in York as Washington's successor. Yes, Washington, who had lost Philadelphia and the faith of the French. Without any sense of ego, Washington knew that his removal at this time would doom the revolution. Gates wasn't up for the task. He was a strutting, political fool. 
Arnold was a capable man, but he was out of action with a second wound. Washington's choice would have been Green, however. Green could do it. There were those in Congress who believed that York was too close to Philadelphia and the British. They were afraid. Maybe Redding would be better, they were thinking. That was safe. As for food and shelter, York was pretty comfy. Washington pictured bringing them all out here to have them share what his men were going through for a week. And then with a second thought, he realized that most of the snakes in Congress, after one or two days, suffering with bare feet and no food, would surrender the country to the British. Probably not a good idea. In fact, his men were of the mood to march on York, arrest Congress, and enjoy the food and lodging that they were now enjoying. And they were talking about it openly. On the day before Christmas, Washington received word from his quartermaster that the foraging parties headed by Colonel Morgan and General Wayne had brought in 14 head of cattle, 8 sheep, and 23 pigs to feed their 12,000 soldiers, provided that every single part of the animals was used, including the heads and bones, which would be boiled down for soup. He also received word that 10 cabins had been completed, that 60 more felling axes had come in along with some shovels and picks for building trenches and breastworks along their lines of defense. Some men picking through the ruins of the forge had discovered some quality wrought iron and were fashioning stoves for the cabins. Each cabin, and Washington knew this because he had designed them, had room for ten men. So now one hundred men of his twelve thousand could sleep with a roof over his head. A very slow start, but a start nonetheless. We'll return to the true story of Valley Forge, Part 1, right after these sponsor messages. And now, back to our story. As Christmas passed and January wore on, the cabins began to sprout up, then many hundreds of log huts in parallel lines that would house, when complete, 9,000 soldiers and 400 women and children throughout the winter were in various stages of completion. Some men brought their families with them. Washington had directed that each hut measure approximately 14 feet by 16 feet, which might be about the same size as your master bedroom, except this space was to hold 10 soldiers. Soldiers were instructed to search the countryside for straw to use as bedding, since there were not enough blankets for everyone. In addition to the huts, the men built miles of trenches, military roads, and paths. According to the National Park Service, one officer said the camp had the appearance of a little city when viewed from a distance. General Washington and his closest aides lived in a two-story stone house they rented from a local woman named Hughes near Valley Stream, also called Valley Forge Creek. That house serves as a museum today. Among the challenges befalling the Continental Army during the Valley Forge winter included poor organization. Two years of war, shuffling leadership, and uneven recruitment resulted in irregular unit organization and strength. During the Valley Forge encampment, the Army was reorganized into five divisions under Major Generals Charles Lee, the Marquis de Lafayette, Johann de Kalb, and William Alexander, Lord Sterling, with Brigadier General Anthony Wayne serving in place of Mifflin. Although Washington enjoyed support among enlisted soldiers, commissioned officers and congressional officials were not as enthusiastic. During the Valley Forge winter, Washington's detractors attacked his leadership ability in both private correspondence and in popular publications. One anonymous letter in January of 1778 disparaged Washington. It read, The proper methods of attacking, beating, and conquering the enemy have never as yet been adapted by the commander-in-chief. 
While historians today disagree as to the seriousness of the threat to Washington's leadership during the Valley Forge winter, the most organized of these threats, albeit loosely organized, was the so-called Conway Cabal. The Cabal insisted of a handful of military officers and American politicians who attempted to replace Washington with the previously mentioned Major General Horatio Gates as the head of the Continental Army. The movement was nominally led by Thomas Conway, a foreign Continental Army general and critic of Washington's leadership. President of Congress in York was named Henry Lawrence, a successful South Carolinian who once was accused of treason by England and locked in the Tower of London, he being the only American to ever suffer that fate. Gates, Conway, and others were constantly pressuring him to make Washington step aside and let Gates assume command, blaming Washington for all the problems at Valley Forge. When Lawrence received a letter from his son John, who was serving with the Continental Army under Washington at Valley Forge, he found John's letter to be remarkably well-versed in the Conway matter, and it was obvious that John knew well the hearts of both he and many of his fellow countrymen soldiers. He berated Gates as a blowhard who didn't deserve the credit for Saratoga, and called out all the dirty dealings of Gates, Conway, and their fellow conspirators. In addition, he placed the blame for the lack of supplies and provisions, clothing and rations, on Congress's lack of action, not on General Washington, and claimed that if Gates ever took command, the entire army would walk out. It was one of those put-that-in-your-pipe-and-smoke-it letters that opened Henry Lawrence's eyes and saved Washington and his army from destruction. The Conway Cabal disintegrated soon after. January brought more cold rain, sleet, and snow, as expected, as well as the end of enlistment for about a quarter of Washington's army. Despite an impassioned plea from Washington, most of them left for home. Others had deserted from patrols that they had been assigned to, whose purpose it was to gather food and provisions. January also brought Baron Friedrich Wilhelm von Steuben over from Europe, thanks to the machinations of Ben Franklin and Silas Dean. Von Steuben arrived at Washington's Valley Forge encampment with glowing credentials and letters to Congress from John Hancock and Sam Adams, credentials which stated that he was a battle-tested general who had served with Frederick of Prussia and Catherine of Russia. He was a big man who spoke only a few words of English, but arrived with a young aide, Peter de Ponceau, aged 17, who could translate, as well as two servants, two French soldiers, and a huge dog named Azor, larger than a mastiff, and very protective of his master. The dog would bare his teeth at anyone who got close to von Steuben. Von Steuben had spent a month in Boston with Adams and others, had learned enough about the Americans' passion for freedom in Europe from Ben Franklin and Silas Dean, and shared the same vitriol for the English that the Americans did. He was ready to take up their cause and ask for no reimbursement. There are many stories out there about von Steuben, and one of my favorites involves the trouble he had with an innkeeper while en route to Yorktown. The night was cold and sleep-filled. He and his men were dog-tired, and they stopped at an inn to dine and stay the night only to be told by the owner that there was no room for him. There was no one in the inn beside the keeper and his wife. The stables were empty. The innkeeper had an attitude that was making it clear he didn't want von Steuben there, saying that he didn't like foreigners, especially Frenchies, who had caused so much trouble during the French-Indian War. Hot words were exchanged between von Steuben, the innkeeper, and Peter, who was translating for both, until von Steuben stormed out to his horse, grabbed his 80 caliber Cossack horse pistol, walked back in, and pointed the pistol at the innkeeper's head. The wife started screaming. Von Steuben told Peter to translate. 
"'Tell him we're tired, hungry, our horses spent, "'and say that I will send him straight to hell, minus his head, "'if he utters another word against our noble French allies.' "'Peter cast a sideways glance at von Steuben. "'May I curse at him, sir?' "'Yes, damn him,' said the baron in English. "'Azor stepped toward the innkeeper, who had started to shrink away. "'Then von Steuben had a thought. "'Peter, tell him I will pay for all six of us in silver.' "'but the beds need to be free of vermin "'and a horse is properly tended to.' "'Peter translated. "'The innkeeper's mood immediately changed. "'The wife headed for the kitchen, "'shouting instructions to the help in the back. "'Von Steuben settled into a large chair by the fire "'while Azor sat down next to him. "'The food which came soon was excellent. "'The innkeeper could be heard in the stable area, "'feeding the horses.' We'll have a lot to say about von Steuben and what he did for the Continental Army in Part 2. What follows here are some stories about Valley Forge that you may not be aware of, including some of its unsung heroes. Valley Forge was unique in American military history in that it brought together a huge swath of colonists from all backgrounds united by one core principle, freedom. When most of us think of Valley Forge, we think of starving, poorly dressed men huddling for warmth around campfires, their bootless feet wrapped in rags. That's one picture, true enough, but there was a much bigger picture to Valley Forge. The people who came to Valley Forge camp included men from all 13 of the original states. The encampment brought together men, women, and children of nearly all ages, from all walks of life, from different ethnic backgrounds, and from various religions. While statistically most were of English descent, the ranks also included persons of African, American Indian, Austrian, Dutch, French, German, Irish, Polish, Portuguese, Prussian, Scottish, Spanish, and Swedish descent. Motivation for enlistment varied, but many who joined in the fight sought to secure their own blessings of liberty while they fought to gain their country's independence from Britain. Many recent European arrivals sought fortune and honor by enlisting in the regiments of the states they now called home. Women followed the army to be with their husbands and contributed actively to the cause. The women present at Valley Forge included hundreds of enlisted men's wives who followed the army year-round, and some officers' wives on extended visits. The army compensated full-time women followers for rendering such valuable services as laundering and nursing. Promises of freedom motivated thousands of enslaved African Americans to join Continental and British forces. In the Continental Army, bound individuals yearning for liberty and wages served alongside free men in search of a better life. The Continental Army was integrated and included many patriots of African descent. I've seen figures ranging from 115 to 700 black Continental soldiers, most of those with the New Hampshire and Connecticut regiments. They were there to fight at Brandywine, and they were there the following summer at Monmouth when our American militia stood toe-to-toe against the greatest army on earth at that time. And there were American Indians serving as well. Most American Indians sided with the British, however... Political, religious, and personal ties led some tribes to support the Patriots. Hundreds of Indians enlisted in the Continental Army, and many others engaged as scouts in specialized units. One of the most notable contributions came from the Oneida tribe, who sent aid and a contingent of warriors to Valley Forge. It's an interesting and largely unknown story. In the spring of 1778, General George Washington asked to have a delegation of Oneida and Tuscarora warriors with his army at Valley Forge. 
Washington and the Congressional Committee wanted these allies to counter the British raids in the area, which were confiscating supplies, seizing stragglers, acquiring intelligence, and harassing civilians. These American Indians could help capture enemy soldiers to gain important information and discourage attempts of desertions from the Continental Army. These warriors had repeatedly proved themselves as exceptional scouts and superb small unit fighters. Washington praised these warriors by writing to General Philip Schuyler, saying that the Oneidas and Tuscaroras have a particular claim to attention and kindness for their perseverance and fidelity. Close to 50 warriors from these nations would be sent to Valley Forge. On May 15, 1778, they arrived at the encampment. On May 18, they were directed to participate in a reconnaissance in force numbering 2,200 troops under the command of Marquis de Lafayette to an area called Barren Hill. On May 20th, British forces appeared trying to capture Lafayette and his army. The Oneida warriors ambushed some of the British soldiers and provided some delay in action as the army started retreating back to the Valley Forge encampment. The Indians were the last to cross the Schuylkill in the army. It's thought that six Oneidas were killed during this engagement, and they're buried at St. Peter's Church Cemetery in Barren Hill. In the middle of June, 34 of the original 50 returned home. Their reason for their quick return was threats from the British and British-American Indian allies on their families and homes. The warriors would continue to fight for the patriotic cause and their own survival in upstate New York for the rest of the war. One member of the Oneida delegation that arrived at Valley Forge in May of 1778 was Polly Cooper. According to oral tradition, the Oneida provided white corn to the ill-supplied army during the encampment. Polly taught them how to cook it for safe consumption and remained to care for soldiers after many of her comrades had already departed. To thank Cooper for her service, she received a black shawl from Martha Washington. Here's another story of some unsung heroes of Valley Forge. According to the diary of Christopher Marshall, a soldier at Valley Forge, on January 7th, at a time when things looked their bleakest, ten teams of oxen, fit for slaughtering, came into camp, driven by loyal Philadelphia women. They also brought 2,000 shirts, smuggled from the city, sewn under the eyes of the enemy. While these women provided crucial assistance, most people remained relatively unaware of the Continental Army's plight, which was an unavoidable result of a general policy to prevent such intelligence from reaching the British. Word had reached these women through Washington spies, and they responded. They risked life and limb to drive those oxen the 20 miles to Valley Forge and deliver badly needed clothing. During the American Revolution, many women took to the road and followed their enlisted loved ones in the Continental Army. They walked with their possessions, oftentimes with their children following. General George Washington initially believed that women should not follow the army because they slowed troop movements. However, he came to realize soon that the women filled roles deemed essential to the survival of the army. One of those camp followers, Mary Ludwig Hayes, the daughter of a New Jersey dairyman, had married a barber named William Hayes, then, for better or worse, followed him as he enlisted with the 4th Continental Artillery Regiment. At age 14, she was with him at Valley Forge, and she was with him later at Monmouth when he was injured and she assisted the gun crew in loading his cannon and continuing his fight against the British. She became a hero that day, and Mary Ludwig Hayes was known to history forever afterwards as Molly Pitcher. The Valley Forge encampment included about 250 to 400 women present. Some, like Jane Norton, earned rations as nurses. Mary Geyer laundered and mended clothes for the 13th Pennsylvania Regiment. Other women sold provisions to the army as sutlers. 
Some women worked as staff in officers' quarters. Hannah Till was an enslaved cook and servant to General George Washington during the Valley Forge encampment in 77-78. She was able to purchase her freedom during the American Revolution and continued to work as a salaried cook. Then there was Margaret Thomas. She was a freed black woman, hired to launder and mend clothing, bed linens, and table linens within General Washington's entire household. According to surviving financial accounts, Thomas joined Washington's staff at his Cambridge, Massachusetts headquarters in February of 1776. She was literate, and she signed her name on an April 12, 1779 document, acknowledging receipt of 66 and two-thirds dollars for one year's wages. At the same time, Margaret Thomas also received one pound of indigo, used as a bluing agent and optic brightener for yellowed whites during laundry's final rinse. As a laundress, she would have shared responsibility caring for the general's clothes with William Lee, Washington's manservant. In kitchens like that, at Washington's Valley Forge headquarters, Thomas would have boiled laundry in a large kettle and heated the irons she used to remove wrinkles in freshly laundered fabrics. Then there was Elizabeth Thompson. She was an Irish woman well into her 70s. Thompson worked as a housekeeper for General George Washington from 1776 to 1781. She was there at Valley Forge. Thompson also oversaw maintenance of the linens and rooms, as well as the packing and unpacking of the household goods for Washington's many headquarters throughout the war. Then there were the officers' wives, Sarah Livingston Alexander, known as Lady Sterling. At 56 years old, she arrived at the Valley Forge encampment to join her husband, Major General William Alexander, known to most of the men as Lord Sterling. Lady Sterling joined other officers' wives for the camp production of the play Cato. We honored the service of Lord Sterling in our Unsung Heroes of the Revolution episode here at 1001 Heroes. Just search the archives if you want to know more about him. It's called Unsung Heroes of the Revolution. Then there was Catherine Katie Littlefield Green, the wife of General Nathaniel Green, the newly appointed quartermaster general of the Continental Army at Valley Forge. Katie Green was 24 years old when she arrived at Valley Forge in January of 1778. Katie entertained other officers' wives and took part in the celebration of the French-American Alliance on May 6, 1778. By the end of May, Catherine Littlefield Green made the return trip home back to Rhode Island to be reunited with her two young children. Then there was Lucy Knox, the wife of General Henry Knox, the commander of the Continental Army's artillery. Lucy Knox was one of the youngest of the officers' wives at Valley Forge, at the age of 22. She arrived at the encampment in late May of 1778 with her two-year-old daughter. She joined her husband in the center of the encampment until the army marched out on June 19, 1778. As most of you know, Henry Knox was the man Washington picked to bring the captured cannons from Fort Ticonderoga to Boston Heights in the middle of the winter, an heroic accomplishment which required transporting men, horses, and cannons across frozen lakes and over mountains, from Lake Champlain, New York, to Boston. But that was the trick needed to make the British evacuate Boston, and it worked. Then there was Martha Washington. During the Revolutionary War, Martha joined her husband for part of each winter encampment that he attended, including the 1777-78 encampment at Valley Forge. She arrived in the beginning of February and left in early June. Much of Martha's time at the encampment was spent running the household at Washington's headquarters. This would include organizing daily meals for the staff and entertaining guests and officers' wives. She played a vital role in keeping spirits high with the officers of the Army. According to Pierre de Ponceau, Secretary to Baron von Steuben, in the middle of all our distress, there were some bright sides of the picture which Valley Forge exhibited. 
Mrs. Washington had the courage to follow her husband to that dismal abode and kept up spirits as well as anyone could have done. And then there were the nurses, all unsung heroes. One of them was Mary Apollonia Hartman Rice, known as Abigail Rice. She was a well-known nurse at Yellow Springs Hospital, where many of the Valley Ford soldiers stricken with disease were treated. Her story deepens our understanding of the civilians' experiences during the war. According to family records, when Abigail was seven years old, she arrived in Philadelphia from Germany on the Royal Union ship. Her family settled in Pikeland, PA, in Chester County. They regularly made the 13-mile journey to attend St. Augustine's Lutheran Church in Trapp, which involved traveling over bridle paths on horseback and crossing the Schuylkill River. The pastor there was Henry Muhlenberg, the main founder of Lutheranism in North America, and father to Brigadier General John Peter Gabriel Muhlenberg, whose 1st Virginia Brigade also camped at Valley Forge. When Abigail was 16, she married Zachariah Rice and gave birth to their first child two years later. In her lifetime, she had an incredible total of 21 children with Zachariah, 17 of whom lived to adulthood. Ancestral records relate Abigail's encounter with George Washington after the Battle of the Clouds was prematurely terminated by a torrential downpour on September 16, 1777. Washington and the rain-soaked Continental soldiers were heading toward nearby Yellow Springs, which is about 10 miles outside of Valley Forge, when Washington stopped at the Rice home to ask for something to drink. Abigail reportedly prepared a flip, which was a common drink at the time made with water, sugar, rum, and spice. She also agreed to let Brigadier General Anthony Wayne's soldiers camp on the Rice family's property that night. A few months later, during the Valley Forge encampment, Yellow Springs, which was originally a health spa village boasting various mineral springs, gained new significance as the site of the only hospital commissioned by the Continental Congress during the war. At Valley Forge, disease was a major killer, causing an estimated 2,000 deaths, more than any single battle in the war. Due to the rapid spread of sicknesses like typhoid, pneumonia, dysentery, and typhus at the encampment, the Yellow Springs Hospital, being only 10 miles away, was a relatively close refuge to house sick soldiers to avoid the spread of disease. Zachariah, Abigail's husband, helped with the hospital's construction, and the building, known as Washington Hall, was completed by January of 78, just in time. Approximately 1,300 soldiers were treated there during the encampment, including those who were treated for smallpox, and we'll get to that story in a minute. The environment inside was likely very different from the sanitary hospital settings that we're familiar with today. Not much was known about proper medical practice, leading to risky operations, such as amputations. The concept that specific germs are the direct cause of certain diseases, which is called germ theory, hadn't been developed yet, so that hygiene was not often the top priority. Furthermore, soap and medical supplies were not always available due to supply shortages. Abigail was described in the records of the annual Hench and Drumgold reunion as a stout, well-built woman, warm-hearted, and ready to lend a helping hand, visiting the hospital many times to bring food and delicacies for the sick or wounded soldiers. As her visits became more frequent, she started tending to the soldiers, and eventually became a nurse there. Revolutionary war nurses were in charge of keeping the hospital clean, as well as caring for and feeding the patients. However, unlike their present-day counterparts, they did not typically administer medical treatments. While caring for the sick at Yellow Springs, Abigail unfortunately contracted typhoid fever. She died November 6, 1789, aged 47 years old, and was buried at St. Peter's United Church of Christ in Chester Springs, which is about a 15-minute drive from present-day Valley Forge Park. 
her original grave marker is no longer there, but it read, Some have children, some have none. Here lies the mother of twenty-one. At her funeral, all seventeen of her surviving children walked in the procession to her grave. An attendee reportedly commented that it was the first and possibly the last time such a sight would be seen at that church. Abigail's story endures as a tribute to the women who served outside of the glory of the spotlight, yet whose roles were crucial in our nation's fight for freedom. Unsung Heroes Maintaining cleanliness was a challenge for the Continental Army. Scabies broke out because of filthy conditions within the encampment, as did other deadlier ailments. The Army had a limited water supply for cooking, washing, and bathing. Dead horse remains often lay unburied, and Washington found the smell of some places intolerable. Neither plumbing nor a standardized system of trash collection existed. To combat the spread of contagion, Washington commanded soldiers to burn tar, or the powder of a musket cartridge, in the huts every day to cleanse the air of putrefaction. On May 27th, Washington had ordered his soldiers remove the mud and straw chinking from huts to render them as airy as possible. Outbreaks of typhoid and dysentery spread to the contaminated food and water. Soldiers contracted influenza and pneumonia, while still others succumbed to typhus, caused by body lice. Although the inconsistent delivery of food rations did not cause starvation, it probably exacerbated the health of ailing soldiers. Some patients might have suffered from more than one ailment. In total, somewhere near 2,000 troops died during the Valley Forge encampment. Valley Forge had the highest mortality rate of any Continental Army encampment, and even most military engagements of the war. Despite the mortality rate, Washington did curb the spread of smallpox, which had plagued the Continental Army since the American Revolution had begun in 1775. By January of 1777, he had ordered mass inoculation of his troops. But a year later at Valley Forge, smallpox broke out again. An investigation uncovered that three to 4,000 troops had not received inoculations, despite having long-term enlistments. So Washington ordered inoculations for any soldiers vulnerable to the disease. A precursor to vaccination, which was introduced by Edward Jenner in 1798, inoculation gave the patient a milder form of smallpox with better recovery rates than if the patient had acquired the disease naturally. The procedure provided lifetime immunity from a disease with a, with a roughly 15 to 33 percent mortality rate. That was very, very high, considering that today's COVID has a 1 percent or less mortality rate. In June of 1778, when the Continental Army marched out of Valley Forge, they had completed the first large-scale, state-sponsored immunization campaign in history. By continuing the inoculation program for new recruits, Washington better maintained military strength among Continental Army troops throughout the remainder of the war. There's also an interesting story about Lafayette that I think most people don't know. He was actually ordered to leave Valley Forge for a period of about five months, and this is the story. First, a little background. Lafayette experienced his first action at the Battle of Brandywine on September 11, 1777, where he showed extreme courage under fire in leading an orderly retreat. He was shot through the calf during the battle. After he recovered, Lafayette was given command of a division of troops. Lafayette freely spent his own money to buy uniforms and muskets for his men, and lived among them during the coldest part of the winter. And despite pleas from his young wife and her family to return to France, Lafayette remained committed to the American cause as well as to the man he could come to consider his all-but-adopted father, George Washington. Lafayette demonstrated his unwavering loyalty to Washington during the Valley Forge encampment by helping Washington face down the so-called Conway Cabal, 
which included a plan to move Lafayette far away from Valley Forge. The Continental Congress's Board of War on January 28th ordered Lafayette to take the newly created Northern Army of the United States North, invade Canada, and return that territory to France. Lafayette discussed the idea with Washington and Valley Forge. Neither man liked the situation, and both only agreed reluctantly. Lafayette asked for and received a series of concessions from Congress before he would accept the order to go north. He insisted that all of his orders come directly from George Washington, not through Congress via the Board of War. Lafayette also chose 20 French officers for his staff. Among those in the group, the French engineer Captain Pierre L'Enfant, who in 1791 would go on to design the city of Washington, D.C. Lafayette headed north in the dead of winter, leaving York on February 3rd. Six days later, he wrote to Washington from Flemington, New Jersey, describing what was becoming a very difficult mission. He wrote, I go on very slowly sometimes, pierced by rain, sometimes covered with snow, and not thinking many handsome thoughts about the projected incursion into Canada. En route, Lafayette and his men ran into other weather-related obstacles, including the wide and deep Susquehanna River, which Lafayette said in his memoirs, was crossed, and not without some danger, since it was filled with floating masses of ice. The men arrived at Albany, New York, on February 17, 1778, where the group, quote, experienced some disappointments, end quote. Instead of a force of 2,500 men, as was promised, Lafayette found fewer than 1,200. In addition, promised supplies were not available. The troops, moreover, complained openly and bitterly about not being paid or clothed and provisioned properly. The trip turned into a fiasco. Lafayette wrote a letter to Congress on February 20th, stating that he was abandoning the mission. On March 13th, Congress issued orders returning the young Frenchman to the main army in Pennsylvania. Washington wrote to Lafayette a week later saying it was his desire that Lafayette, quote, will without loss of time return to camp to resume the command of a division of this army, end quote. Lafayette left Albany for Valley Forge on March 31, 1778. He arrived late in April and learned that on February 6th, the United States and France had signed a treaty of alliance, which created a formal military alliance between the two nations. Stay tuned for part two of Valley Forge, coming in two weeks. If you enjoy our show here at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast, please do take a moment, especially you Apple listeners, and send us a review. We appreciate reviews very much. We also appreciate our Patreon supporters at patreon.com forward slash 1001 Stories Network. For a few dollars every month, you can help 1001 Stories make it to 2001 Stories. One other thing, very, very important, June is a sweeps month for us, a ratings month. So it's very important that we bring in new listers. If you can, please try and take a minute or two and help a friend or a family member discover our podcast. How you, how you find our podcast and how you subscribe to it, that's the greatest way you can help us, by bringing us new subscribers. We appreciate your efforts, and we appreciate your being loyal fans of our show more than you'll ever know. Thank you. We'll return with the untold stories and unsung heroes of Valley Forge, Part 2 in two weeks. Be sure to tune in next Sunday night for our five-night interview with David M. Beers regarding his new book, Immunity from Murder. It's a story you're not going to want to miss. Until then, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.